From Dartmouth Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on providing up-to-date COVID-19 information in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm your host, Jesse Swain, Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Dartmouth Health, here with Dr. Jose Mercado, Regional Medical Director for Inpatient Quality. And today we'll be talking with Mary Curtin Pierce, Infection Preventionist, and Aaron Patnode, Infection Preventionist for Cheshire Medical Center in Keene, New Hampshire, to discuss the latest in COVID-19 update. Hello, Mary and Aaron. We're super happy to have you join us today. Thanks so much for having us. I'm excited. Good morning. It's an honor. Thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. So it's not surprising that as the COVID-19 pandemic has evolved, so have the CDC, CMS, and OSHA guidelines. Mary, can you kick us off today by telling us how infection preventionists use these guidelines to develop policies for our healthcare facilities and what other factors may be taken into consideration? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we recognized early on was that with the frequent changes that we needed a way to, to be proactive. And instead of running around like we're constantly putting out fires, our staff were having to adapt to these changes so quickly. And the education that would have to come out was was so rapid that people were having a hard time keeping up, ourselves included. One of the things that we were able to do with some of this work early on was to develop a banding system so that we were able to be proactive instead of reactive. And so using things that came out of OSHA and CDC, we were able to sort of like build a framework that people could understand easily which phase we're in and what actions we needed to take. Thanks, Mary. I hope this helps shed some light on some of the things that are taken into consideration when developing policies in our facilities and to provide a safe environment for everyone entering Dartmouth Health facilities. I know there's been a lot of discussion around masking, especially recently with new CDC guidance. No doubt most of us would like to return to a time when we could walk the corridors of our healthcare facilities without a mask on. Erin, can you first give the audience a brief explanation of the difference between source control and personal protective equipment or PPE, followed by your interpretation of the recent CDC update on masking inside of healthcare facilities? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So source control basically refers to wearing a well-fitting face mask. So what that means is that it's covering your nose and your mouth to help prevent the spread of germs that you generate from yourself to spreading to those around you. Reversely, right? So PPE is a prescriptive set of standards based on a patient's known or unknown infection status. And so these are put into play in order to protect our healthcare providers, our ancillary staff, our visitors, et cetera. And so your next question in regards to the latest CDC update regarding masking. So this guidance has updated to allow facilities to flex. Now this is important <laughs> when community transmission levels are low. And so I can tell you that most of the U.S., including New Hampshire and our neighboring states are in the red. And so now if we ever do see low levels of community transmission, as we all hope and pray, as Jesse said, there will still be restrictions for those who can unmask in a healthcare setting. And so just keeping in mind, our goal is to always keep our patients, staff, and community safe. 
Thanks, Aaron. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So <laughs> what is the current masking policy at the Dartmouth Health Facilities? And was this a change? Yeah, so at the Dartmouth Health Facilities, our guidance remains unchanged, right? Because we just talked about we are in the red. And so we continue to follow the CDC guidance for masking, requiring universal source control, especially in public areas or when patients are um, being encountered. Fantastic. Thanks, Erin. So throughout the pandemic, CDC has set the standard for PPE for suspect and COVID positive patients. Did CDC make any changes to this prior standard? That's a great question. And the answer is no. The stance remains the same for our patients coming into the hospital setting that are suspect or confirmed to have COVID-19. And that standard is contact and airborne PPE, which is airway protection by means of N95 or PAPR, eye protection, gown, and gloves. Thanks so much, Erin. So another topic worth mentioning that has been somewhat controversial and even part of some recent healthcare legislation this past year is patient visitation. So Mary, can you give us an update on how patient visitation has evolved up to this point? Yeah, so patient visitation in very early stages of the pandemic, the stance was that we would shut down the hospital settings to any outside visitors. And that was basically based in the fact that we didn't know how transmissible this was or how much it could affect our staff. So we were sort of in this holding pattern. And so the first part of our holding pattern was to sort of shelter in place. So get our staff in that we needed to be able to care for all of the patients. And obviously the patients were there, but to keep everybody else to protect what was going on within this, the four walls of the hospital. As we saw the pandemic evolve, we realized more and more how much impact this was having, not only on our patients, but our staff. And so it brought up as the pandemic sort of dragged on beyond the time frame where we all hoped it would, we started to see or understand and hear our patients and our visitors and our loved ones of our patients that were having a hard time coping with the fact that we had such limited access to their loved ones while they were admitted into the hospital. And this went as far as those that were dying in active dying phases. We learned that there were some patients across the country that weren't able to have any of those loved ones near them during those last moments of their life. But it also affected those patients that did not have COVID. For example, someone who is going through a different process of death and dying related to some other illness because it was sort of like a blanket policy applied. And so as this time evolved, we saw more and more that the outcomes of these actions were sort of, they were detrimental not only to those that were in the hospital. We know that patients who don't have psychosocial needs met recover slower or have a hard time or have higher incidence of traumatic experiences that they recall following their hospitalization. But we also saw that it was having a negative outcome on our staff. So when we see patient satisfaction and experience decrease, we, we see staff experiences also being reported as negative. And when we're at such a tumultuous time with unprecedented times when there are medical and nursing staff leaving the field, we needed a way to curb that. And so I think what we see now is there's sort of a, there was a legislative initiative to stop that 
sort of shelter in place that, that was going on for hospitals and healthcare facilities, saying that patients and families have a right to be there, that it's their prerogative. So obviously it's controversial because there are still folks that are afraid. And it's true that we are seeing people come in and bring the disease into our work setting and threaten staff with illness. But because people didn't have a way to uniformly apply visitation rules, right? So some hospitals were shut down and some were not. The legislation stepped in to try to allow some uniformity and hopefully we'll start to see more positive outcomes than just our staff and other visitors being exposed to illness, but also their psychosocial needs reporting more positive outcomes. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, I'm definitely a proponent of patient visitation, but I do understand in the beginning that we needed to offer a safe environment, both for the patients and our staff. So something that we had to do, and hopefully we'll never have to face that kind of a challenge again. But along with visitation, another change that patients and visitors and even staff will be noticing is at the Dartmouth facilities and other facilities out there that we've heard of is the lack of in-person screeners. So Mary, can you elaborate a little bit on what healthcare facilities are doing instead of having these in-person screeners greeting people at the doors? So, and just to set the stage, so we had inpatient screeners to prompt people to acknowledge whether or not they were having symptoms of this illness or if they were exposed to any illness and to try to mitigate risk to those that were inside the four walls of the hospital. So in standing that process down, what we're doing is putting more of the onus on the individual that's coming in to take the time to read the documentation, the risks or the exposures that would hopefully prompt them to not come in or to seek medical advice, but also for masking as well as hand hygiene. So the process now is that when someone arrives to the doors of the healthcare facility, we are able to allow them to enter, to self-screen, to self-don their mask and perform hand hygiene, and then be able to move through the facility. So I think... This is just in the acute care setting. I'm not sure that all healthcare facilities have moved to this method. I'd have to do some reading, but in our setting, certainly that is the route that we've taken. Thanks, Mary. So as we've seen, the symptoms associated with COVID-19 infection are quite a variety and not consistent for everyone. And I can definitely say this was the case for my family where it was entirely different for each person. Aaron, does this mean that everyone should test for COVID-19, even if they only have one symptom or maybe just mild symptoms? Yes, absolutely. So as you very clearly noted that many people experience differing signs and symptoms of COVID-19. So if you have any of those symptoms of COVID-19, you should absolutely seek testing and stay home. We can't say that enough. Stay home to ensure that we are respectfully not spreading unnecessary illness to others. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially now we're seeing a heightened amount of other respiratory illnesses. I think probably a good part due to the fact that folks are not necessarily masking in public spaces or in schools. 
in addition to not being as isolated. So I think we don't know what the symptoms are, but it makes sense. Everything you're saying, do the testing and stay home because we want to keep all these other illnesses from spreading as well. So thank you both so much, Erin and Mary, for sharing your knowledge and your experiences with us today. Do you have any special parting words for the listeners? I guess my parting words just echo everything we were talking about. Be kind to everyone. And that means be kind to your healthcare members that are suffering and tired. Be kind to other patients and other staff in the fact that we need you to screen and we need you to stay home when you're sick, right? Because we can't take down our whole, we've learned early on, we cannot take down our entire healthcare industry. It would be, and it is detrimental to the health and safety of our entire nation. So I think for me, it's just a matter of um, please be kind, please be respectful. And that means both to humans alike, but also in being respectful and acknowledging if you're ill and staying home. Yeah, thanks, Mary. That was a great segue into my parting words. I want to say that we certainly appreciate your patience here in the healthcare industry. We have faced many challenges during the last several years. And just please know that our number one goal is to provide the safest, best patient care and experience possible. And so your health is our priority and we thank you for your patience. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Next up, we have Dr. Philip Adamo, Section Chief and Medical Director of Occupational and Environmental Health and Wellbeing, joining us to discuss the evolution of occupational health regarding COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Adamo. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Dr. Adamo, we just met with Mary Pierce and Aaron Patnode, infection preventionists at Cheshire Medical Center, around many of the CDC updates that affect patients and staff working in healthcare facilities. But we're hoping that you can offer some additional thoughts regarding the changes to healthcare worker exposure definitions and the management of those folks. Sure. One of the changes that has occurred is that we are now testing exposed asymptomatic individuals on day one, three, and five. This is a change. And I do have to tell you that over the past two and a half years, there have been lots of other changes that we have had to go through and communicate this to our employees. Remember, I focus on the employee side and keeping in mind that we also take care of patients. Are there any specific operational challenges that you want to call out, Dr. Adamo? Yes. Communication is important. Uh, Also, collaborating with many of our colleagues on the HR side, our colleagues in epidemiology, our chief quality officer, Dr. Michael Calderwood. And also, we have an ops COVID meeting with many of the leaders throughout the organization. And every week, we talk about those challenges because the CDC changes their guidelines. We also have to keep in mind that OSHA, uh, which focuses on the employee safety, also has some mandates for us to follow. So we have to balance all of those regulatory issues, recognizing that the CDC places guidelines upon us. Guidelines are not mandates. OSHA places mandates on us. Great. Thank you so much. So It seems that COVID-19 continues to create these challenges in the healthcare facilities. And one of the major challenges that has been affecting healthcare facilities across the country is staffing levels. 
Can you talk a little bit about the guidance for staff who test positive for COVID-19 and what criteria they need to meet before they can return to work? Sure, that's a great question. So we use the CDC guidelines. Remember I said that they're guidelines and not mandates because sometimes there has to be a little bit of flexibility when we deal with the CDC and includes different scenarios based on the, the decision on when an employee with who has COVID remains out of work and how they get back to work depends upon the staffing of the organization. So here at Dartmouth Health. And there is a document that is put out by the CDC that talks about three different categories of both conventional, which is when, when everything is good, staffing is good, contingency, we're somewhere in between conventional and the third category, which is a crisis. So depending upon where we are, and right now we are operating under a contingency plan, and here at DHMC, an individual who has COVID is out of work for five days and can return to work if they are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and they do not need a test. Some of our partners throughout the organization also consider what their level of disease is in their community. So the Southern region may be different than what we do up here in the upper Valley. The second document that we use is an internal document. We call it a job aid and it's entitled, should I work today? And it has probably undergone eight different versions in the past couple of years, because we have to adopt it to what we recommend to our employees upon return to work. So. Should I Work Today has been in existence way before COVID. It's a great document for an employee to know when they should or should not go to work. So before COVID, we had strep. We have flu. Let's not forget about flu. And employees would be wondering when they can come back to work. If they had a skin infection, when can they come to work? So that guideline is in effect. And many times what we do is advise an employee when they call us, that you need to be out for five days. However, please remember to look at the Should I Work Today guidelines. You must be fever-free for more than 24 hours off fever-reducing medications. If you are in that category and you have mild symptoms, then you can return to work. Is that helpful to you? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So do you have any other key points from the occupational health and well-being perspective that you want to leave our listeners with today? Sure. I, again, I want to reiterate that the reason for these changes was not just pulled out of the air. Since the start of COVID, you know that we have had a lot of strategies and mitigations to reduce the virus. I mean, people were dying in great amounts early on. We needed to protect patients. We needed to protect our healthcare workers. And with the vaccination and booster that has helped reduce hospitalizations and we have less sickness from the COVID-19 virus. And so I think the CDC has helped us to try to get our employees back to work because we can't take in patients to care for if we don't have the staffing. And it, even if there's a bed, if there is not a nurse or other a healthcare worker to help take care of that patient, then we're causing harm to, to that patient. And we don't want to do that. And when I say healthcare worker, I'm not only talking about nurses and physicians and LNAs, LPNs. I'm looking at food service individuals, environmental services folks. They're all important. 
to the care of the patient. If we don't have a clean room, we can't take care of a patient. If we don't have food to bring patients, we can't have them there. So it really is a collaborative effort that we have started here since the, the start of COVID-19. And my parting word is COVID is not gone. And I will walk the walk and tell you that I still recommend wearing a mask as a healthcare worker when I am out in the community where there's large crowds or I'm going to be around in a supermarket for more than 15 minutes. I'm still going to wear a mask. I'm going to protect not only myself, my family, but also my coworkers. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much again, Dr. Adamo. So next up, we have Dr. Michael Calderwood, infectious diseases physician and chief quality officer for Dartmouth Medical Center, joining us to offer some insights around vaccination and the future of the COVID pandemic. Welcome back, Dr. Calderwood. Happy to be here. So can you give us a brief status update on the COVID pandemic in the United States? Sure. I think this is really helpful for the discussion that we're going to have and helping people to really understand where we are and, and where we're going. So over the last three weeks, the U.S. has averaged around 264,000 new COVID-19 cases per week and around 2,600 deaths per week. Over a seven-day average, we're seeing about 3,400 individuals in the United States hospitalized per day. And if we look through August, what we know is that COVID-19 hospitalizations remain about five times higher in those who remain unvaccinated and actually are over seven times higher in those in the age group of 50 to 64. And that's important to highlight because people often think, well, I'm younger than 65, maybe I don't need the vaccine, but that's a pretty big number if we think about a seven times higher rate of hospitalization in that age group of 50 to 64. Now, we're also focused on deaths, and thankfully over time, we've seen deaths coming down, but the risk of dying right now in kind of November of 2022 is about 12 times higher in those who are unvaccinated compared to those who are up to date, meaning they've had kind of typically two or more boosters, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And for those who've only had a single booster, the risk of dying is actually three times higher compared to those who are up to date. And so really speaks to the importance of getting one of the new boosters that are now available. It is also worth mentioning, we are seeing new variants that are circulating in the community. Folks are aware of the BA5 strain of Omicron. It was very prevalent in the news over the summer, causing a lot of illness. That's actually down to about 50%. And we're beginning to see new variants emerge. And these variants have some resistance to some of the monoclonal antibodies that we've been using to treat and protect patients. And so it's important for folks to be aware of that. Variants that are resistant to bevtilovimab are up to 27%. That's a therapy we use when people become infected and we're trying to avoid hospitalization. And variants resistant to Evusheld or up to 46%. That was a big help in our immunocompromised patients who may not respond as well to a vaccine. Now, thankfully, both Paxlovid and Remdesivir remain active. And we also have other positive news. The mortality associated with COVID-19 has been declining. This is related to newer variants, but really related to better therapies and more immunity in the community as more and more people are vaccinated, as well as have had prior infections. What I can say is that the projections that we're seeing right now is that hospitalizations 
should be about 84% lower this winter compared to last winter, and daily infections are projected to be 79% lower. So this is all very encouraging information. However, what is an unknown is hospitalizations from other respiratory illnesses. We currently are seeing a large increase in RSV. We are predicting we're going to have a worse flu season. And this is because of fewer people wearing masks in the community. And we're returning to normalcy, which includes more winter respiratory viruses. Wow. Yeah. So it's been quite an evolution. And I'm, I can't say that I'm excited about the increase in respiratory illnesses, although, you know, we're all sort of excited about moving towards a new norm. So speaking of vaccination, Pfizer and Moderna recently released bivalent vaccines. Can you explain to the audience the difference between these vaccines and the prior vaccines that many people received for their primary series? Yes, I actually think that these new bivalent vaccines are quite exciting. So they contain a kind of spike protein, mRNA, from the original ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2. This is the virus that causes COVID-19, as well as containing the mRNA for the more recent Omicron strains, and particularly BA4 and BA5. And the benefit of mRNA vaccines is that you can quickly swap out the messenger RNA. And this is what encodes immunity for newer strains. And so this technology allows us to quickly adapt as new strains evolve to say, okay, I'm going to put in a new messenger RNA that will allow us to keep up and provide that immunity. Now, as folks likely know, the messenger RNA instructs the cells to produce the protein antibody against SARS-CoV-2. It's very short-lived. It essentially degrades very quickly, but it's there long enough to essentially provide that local immunity, which then the body takes over and continues to develop over months and months. Now, the need for updated COVID-19 vaccines is similar to how we recommend annual flu shots. The circulating strains change over time, and it's important to update our protection against what's currently circulating in the community. In addition, we know that immunity wears off over time. That's actually true for other vaccines like the flu vaccine. And that's why boosters are so important. We actually have very good data now that you get a more robust antibody response against the currently circulating variants with these bivalent vaccines. And we now have published human studies on the original bivalent vaccine showing superior protection including in people that had prior COVID-19 infection. And thankfully, the reactions to the vaccine were no different than that was seen with the original COVID-19 vaccines. People always want to know, what will my symptoms be like? We typically see symptoms very similar to what you had when you got a prior vaccine series against COVID-19. And part of the reason we're encouraging so many people to come out is that it is estimated that if we could get 80% of those who are eligible to come forward and get one of the new bivalent vaccines, we would see 90,000 fewer deaths and over 935,000 fewer hospitalizations by the end of March 2023. These are huge numbers. Now, even if we could only get as many people vaccinated as typically get a flu shot, the impact is still huge. So where we currently stand, we are not going to see these numbers. We're going to see a lot of death and illness through the winter. And that's why I continue to 
emphasize the importance of getting up to date. Yeah, absolutely. And I think along with this conversation around the vaccine, so, you know, many people, they got their primary series and we weren't sure what was for the future of the vaccines, if there would be additional vaccines that would be produced or if this would become sort of an annual vaccine like the influenza vaccine. But can you talk to us a little bit about what is now considered up to date, which has been a really challenging question to answer. You know, it's a really important question. It's one that often is confusing for people. So the definition of up to date actually depends on your age, whether you're someone who has an impaired immune system, and when you last received a vaccine, including when you last received an initial booster against COVID-19. The current definition of up to date includes receipt of one of the two bivalent vaccines approved by the FDA and the CDC for those who are age five and older. There are really helpful vaccine schedules available on the CDC website for those who want to look up specifics based on their history. But what I can say is that if you have only received a single booster, it has been more than two months since you received that booster and you are age five and older, you are eligible and it is recommended that you get the more recent bivalent vaccine to have optimal protection through the upcoming respiratory viruses. Great. Thank you so much. Now, you know that I follow your Twitter post and I recently saw one around the recommendations for when to get a vaccination after you've had a COVID-19 infection. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around the evolution of that research, because I think we've heard different things about how long to wait. And this is where really the research continues to evolve. And part of the discussion is that after you've had an infection, you actually will have boosted immunity for a period of time. And so well, we have guidance that you are eligible for kind of vaccination three months after that infection. What we know is that you probably have boosted immunity for longer than that. And knowing that immunity wanes over time, some are saying maybe wait four or even six months before getting that vaccine. The guidance hasn't been updated to reflect that. And again, I think I would take it case by case. If someone is older and higher risk based on their immune status, we really should be getting them updated vaccine as soon as they're eligible. If they're younger, had that recent illness and want to think about, well, that booster is only going to last me a period of time, maybe I'd wait out to the six months and get boosted. That is evolving literature. And what I would say is there's a lot of debate and you will see from that Twitter post, there was a lot of debate in people's response to that paper and one I had posted on before as to how we should be interpreting that data. And one other question around that. Do we suspect that there's any harm to someone receiving the vaccine within a short time frame after having the COVID-19 infection? So that is an area where we have not shown a lot of incidents of increased side effects where we haven't seen heightened concern in terms of the harm. I frame it more about, well, do you need the immunity then that will wane off or can you wait and give you a longer period in terms of months of immunity if you were to wait a couple more months? 
Fantastic. So the COVID-19 pandemic has lasted for more than two years, and it seems as though this will be something that we will be dealing with for the rest of our lifetimes, if similarly to influenza. So Dr. Calderwood, based on what we have experienced and the research that is available, what do we see as the future for management of COVID-19 in healthcare? So this is an area where we actually have a lot of data. And what I would say is this has been an incredible three years for science and a focus on therapeutics for a illness that is caused by a virus. And historically, we have had many more therapeutics for bacterial illness than we have had for viral illness. And so we do have some treatments for flu, and we have some treatments for some other rarer viruses. But in general, people come in with respiratory illness caused by a number of different viruses that we don't have effective therapies for. So in a short period of time, we have developed treatment pathways, both in the outpatient setting, so preventing people actually needing hospitalization. How do you get someone into care quickly, deliver them a therapy that then can actually help them to recover and not require a higher level of care? And then for those that are in the hospital, we have therapies that are targeted both at the virus and at the inflammatory response. And a lot of what actually is happening is that this virus causes a very significant inflammatory response that causes a lot of the critical illness. And so what is our use of steroids? What is our use of other medications that can downregulate that inflammatory response so that people can have less death, have less long-term symptoms and illness related to COVID-19? What I can say is the National Institutes of Health, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and other professional societies continue to update their treatment guidelines for all of these settings and actually are doing this on a weekly basis. And so I'm asked to kind of weigh in on updated guidance quite frequently. And we have effective therapies that we did not have at the start of this pandemic, and research is ongoing. I think the area that I'm most excited about right now is around our use of Paxlovid. This is a therapy that actually has been extremely effective in preventing hospitalization. We hear a lot about this rebound phenomenon. I think it's important for folks to realize that, well, we do see rebound. That actually is the minority. Most people actually get Paxlovid and do not have rebound. But there is a discussion now around whether five days is enough. And should we be studying longer durations because maybe the rebound is because people didn't get treated long enough. And so that's research that is ongoing. And so we will continue to learn more about this illness and how we treat this illness over time. Again, the positive news is the overall mortality from this illness is significantly lower today than where it was at the start of the pandemic. That's wonderful. So I think one of the things that I think is important for people to realize coming out of this is that, to your point earlier on, is that we were able to develop treatments and vaccines in a very rapid amount of time. And I think that 
maybe in the past people thought something like that couldn't be done or be done safely, but we have done that. So I think looking to the future, that's very exciting that we have the knowledge that we can actually do things like this at a much faster pace and actually help save lives and provide these treatments. That to me is just amazing. This was our moonshot. We put everything we had into this effort. So when we work together, when we get the entire scientific community behind this, we can do it rapidly, but with rigor and data and bring effective therapeutics. We didn't rush the effort, but we essentially said this was the most important issue that our society was facing. And we brought everything to bear in terms of making sure we got effective therapeutics, that we learned in real time, that we had a sharing of data. We broke down those walls and we had communication that allowed us to get very rapidly, probably more rapidly than we had ever gotten before. And we need to learn from that. We need to actually understand how we do that in other areas because that is really effective. Yeah, I think that's excellent. So do you have any parting words for the listeners today? You know, I think that it has been said earlier in the podcast, COVID is, is not over. COVID will be with us for a long period of time. You will see changing policies around mask use. You will see that we are beginning to gather again, have holidays that may look more familiar. We will have people traveling more. These are all the things that we have been aiming to get back to, and that is a positive. What we need to recognize is our potential to spread illness to others and our potential to acquire illness from those around us. And so there are countries that have done better with this in terms of, I don't feel well today. I'm not going to go into work. We have the ability to work remotely. This has been a big change in how we manage our day-to-day lives. But that understanding of I may put others at risk. I'm going to wear a mask. I may stay home. I'm going to take the time to care for myself because by caring for myself, I'm caring for those around me as well. And then understanding. It's not going to be the same for everyone. If you're young and not immunocompromised, you're up to date on your vaccines, you may go to that large concert. You may make a a risk-benefit choice that you don't wear the mask. If you're older and immunocompromised, you may feel, you know what? Well, I have tried everything I can to make sure I am protected with vaccination. One additional layer is the mask. And so as you look around, what we realize is people are going to make choices in this regard. I ask people to make the choice personally when they are ill to most certainly think about others. And to then realize when people are wearing masks, they've made a risk-benefit discussion. You know, I wouldn't give an evil eye to someone wearing a mask. They wouldn't give an evil eye to someone not wearing a mask. We have to understand that we are each individuals and we are making decisions that are best for ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think those are fantastic parting words. So thank you so much for joining us today, as always. Wonderful. Thank you for the conversation. 
Thanks, everyone. We're Jesse Swain and Jose Mercado, and you've been listening to Dartmouth Health's The Cure.